Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have John M. Efron, who is the current professor of Jewish history at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, He's here to talk about his new book, German Jewry and the Allure of the Sephardic, published this year by Princeton University Press. Thanks very much for joining us, John. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. First off, we'll just start with, uh, if you could tell us how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, I have been long interested in um, aesthetics and the Jewish body. And um, the latter uh, were the subject of two books that I wrote. The first book was called Defenders of the Race, Jewish Doctors and Race Science in Fantasiacle Europe. And then I followed that up with another book called Medicine and the German Jews, A History. And so both of those books were in some way about the appearance of Jews, uh, the physical appearance in particular of Jews, uh, their corporealization, uh, the idea of Jews as an embodied people. And in the course of the first book, Defenders of the Race, which was really about uh, the work of Jewish physical anthropologists at the end of the 19th century and their response to racial anti-Semitism and the way they used their own training to um, counter uh, the claims of um, anti-Semitic race science. In the, in the course of doing that book, I became very aware of um, anthropological descriptions of both Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry and the way that those descriptions um, differed significantly from one another. That is to say, the Sephardim were almost always portrayed positively with a special stress on their beauty, while Ashkenazic Jewry was uh, portrayed in almost the exact opposite. That is to say, um, their lack of beauty or portrayed as being ugly, crude physical features, etc. And uh, I published uh, an article in the uh, Leo Beck yearbook, which is the principal uh, venue for the study publications, for the principal venue where um, work on the history of German-speaking Jews is published. And I published that in 1993 with a special emphasis just on these physical descriptions. Um, and then, I, you know, after some years and doing other work, I came back to this subject uh, and found that um, the depictions of Sephardic Jewry by German Jews extended far beyond the, uh, the anthropological and went off in many, many, many areas 
and uh, those other areas, including the anthropological, uh, form the basis of uh, the book German Jewry and the Allure of the Sephardic. Right. So we'll um, get sort of a little bit more in depth uh, into into that um, in a second. But I thought um, as sort of background to the main arguments of your book, if you could tell us about uh, the social and legal position of German Jewry um, in the late 18th century, which is sort of where your, where your story begins. Sure. The book, um, the book begins in the late 18th century, as you say, and it extends up until around 1900. So it's a period of about 120 years. Now, at the beginning of that period, a German Jewry was a, what I would call a traditional Jewish community, a religious Jewish community. It was uh, overwhelmingly uh, poor, and it was part of what I would call a much larger pan-Ashkenazic uh, Jewish world in Europe. That is to say, there wasn't much difference in a, in a meaningful way between Eastern European and Central European Jewry. There were differences um, that were determined by uh, local custom, um, but by and large these were sort of interchangeable communities, that is to say um, Polish Jews sent their sons to Yeshivot in Germany and vice versa, there was much intermarriage between the two communities, uh, significant commercial links between the two communities, and culturally they were of a piece. Both of them, for example, spoke Yiddish, two different kinds, a Western Yiddish and an Eastern Yiddish, but nonetheless, uh, a bit Yiddish nonetheless. Um, there's one exception to this portrait um, that I've just drawn, and that is uh, the Jews of Berlin in the late 18th century. Small in number, about 3,500. And unlike the rest of the Jews in Germany, they tended to be uh, better off, if not wealthy, because they were um, tolerated. And by tolerated, that is uh, what I mean, is that is a legal category. They were protected tolerated Jews, that is to say they had letters of patent and permission to live in Berlin and trade in certain areas, and those uh, letters of patent were, or letters of protection, they were also known as, uh, were only granted to Jews with a, with a certain income level. And it is those Jews uh, who, led the, who, who led this phenomenon of um, idealising Sephardic Jewry, what happened is, is this pan-Ashkenazic world begins to collapse towards the end of the 18th century with the advent of Hasidism in Eastern Europe. Mm. Hasidism never crosses the border from Poland into Germany. And simultaneously, the other major marker of identity, aside from religion, is, of course, language. And German Jewry mm. begins the slow but inexorable um, transition from away from Yiddish to German, whereas Eastern European Jews continued to speak Yiddish. So in those two major areas, the two communities began to diverge, both in the religious sense and in the linguistic sense. 
And in the process of distinguishing themselves from the much larger Jewish communities of Poland, in Poland in the late 18th century had over 750,000 Jews. It was a gigantic community, a powerful community. In the process of distinguishing themselves from Polish Jewry, it's at that moment that they began to invoke medieval Sephardic Jewry as a model of an ideal community that they believed that they could in some way emulate. That is to say, not copy. They never wanted to be anything other than German Jews. So they didn't want to be Sephardim. They didn't want to engage in Sephardic practices. But they looked at Sephardic Jewry as an ideal community with one foot planted firmly in the dominant uh, Spanish or secular culture, European culture, or in this particular case, Muslim culture, um, and another foot firmly planted within Jewish tradition. And that suited them as an ideal as an ideal form of a Jewish community, and they sought to emulate uh, those, those traits that they saw in medieval Sephardic Jewry. Right. Yeah, so we've, you've already touched on this a little bit. If you could, in Chapter 1, you, you sort of outline uh, the growing German-Jewish disdain for, for Yiddish mm-hmm. and also at the same time um, a growing veneration of, um, of Hebrew. Yeah. And, yeah, if you could tell us a bit about why language was so important here um, and also particularly about how there was this advocacy for uh, Sephardic over Ashkenazic uh, mode of Hebrew pronunciation. Sure. Um, what makes the relations between German Jews and Eastern European Jews so fraught, I think, lies in language. And that is to say the very proximity of German to Yiddish made German Jews hyper-self-vigilant, um, fearful that they would be thought of as speaking Yiddish, not speaking correct German. And it was a kind of, it led to a kind of a, um, paranoia is too strong a word, but it's something in that realm where uh, other Jewish communities, whether it's a French Jewish community or an Anglophone Jewish community, never experienced that kind of reaction to Yiddish because those dominant languages, English and French, are so far removed from Yiddish that it never posed a sort of a threat. But the same cannot be said of German. And so... That that adds a certain tension to the relationship between German Jews and uh, Eastern European Jews. And to answer the second part of your question uh, is why in the 18th century did German Jews begin to uh, express a preference for Sephardic pronunciation of Hebrew? That too is rooted in, in, in language and it has to do with Yiddish. And that is that the Ashkenazic pronunciation of Hebrew reminded them too frequently of the way Hebrew words in Yiddish were pronounced. 
So one way to what they sought to do was to both eliminate the use of Yiddish and eliminate the use of Ashkenazic Hebrew. And it was no accident that those two things occurred at exactly the same time. In Chapter 2, you moved to talk about the development of a discourse which uh, promoted a view of Sephardim as the most physically beautiful Jews. Um, could you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so this is the um, this is the chapter that deals with uh, comportment and deportment, and this was extremely important to German Jews. Uh, by the way, I want to make one thing very clear um, because um, some people have asked me about this. When I speak about Sephardim, I mean actual Sephardim. That is to say, of the uh, Sephardim of medieval Spain, of the Golden Age, which went from about 900 to 1100. Those are the, that is the community that the German Jews of the 18th and 19th century are referring to. They're not referring to contemporary Sephardic Jews, let's say in what had been the Ottoman Empire, nor are they referring to what we would call today Mizrahim, Jews of Middle Eastern lands. They're only referring to the Jews of Spain, say between 900 and 1100. Um, And that community uh, was portrayed by German Jews as being um, intellectually, aesthetically, and in fact even physically uh, beautiful, more beautiful than um, Ashkenazic Jews. And, of course, what the the twist in the tale of all of this is that this promotion of Sephardic beauty and Sephardic superiority was being made by Ashkenazic Jews. Right? It's being made by these German Jews, all of whom are Ashkenazic. Now, Sephardim themselves had a long-established tradition of declaring their own uh, superiority vis-à-vis Ashkenazic Jewry. Uh, but the story that I'm telling in this book is about the promotion of Sephardic superiority by Ashkenazic Jewry, by German Jews. And so in the already in the 18th century, we begin to see in uh, certain Hebrew and German language journals, uh, Jewish ones, uh, biographical portraits of what they used to refer to as great men of the nation, um, by which they mean sort of Sephardic Jews. And uh, poets like Yudha Halevi, of course, Maimonides, uh, Ibn Ezra, and um, Don Isaac Abravanel. These were people who were regularly um, the subject of uh, many biographies um, in the German Jewish press, as I say, both Hebrew language and German language uh, press, um, where their virtues were extolled, their achievements were celebrated, and they were set up again as models of ideal, uh, ideal Jews. And the thing that perhaps attracted German Jewry to them more than anything was not so much their intellectual achievements. For example, uh, uh, Isaac Abravanel was a biblical exegete and an extremely conservative man. That wouldn't have appealed to them too much. 
But what really did attract German Jews was the ability of these Sephardic Jews to interact with the non-Jewish world, that they basically knew what to do in public. They spoke the dominant language. They could speak Spanish with non-Jews. They could um, engage in philosophical debate, in diplomacy, in high-level commerce. All of those things, that ability to um, function outside of the narrow confines of Jewish society was what really attracted German Jews to them more than anything else, I think. And that required, on the part of um, Spanish Jewry, um, a certain ability to comport themselves, to have a kind of a stature, a standing, um, a way of being. And I mean this in a sort of a physical sense, that they could be in company that wasn't just Jewish. And so that, that chapter two of my book uh, deals with the portrait of uh, Spanish Jews as drawn by German Jews in the 18th and 19th century, uh, with a special emphasis on the way they carried themselves. It was all about their bearing. And this idea of their um, being presentable, uh, the German word is salonfehig, that they could they could uh, be keep company in the salons of Europe, as it were, um, that they're capable of uh, behaving themselves in public, and by public is meant non-Jewish public. They wouldn't embarrass themselves. Mm. And that is what German Jewry, uh, as it began its own um, process of self-fashioning and self-actualization uh, that begins in the 18th century as they begin to split away from uh, Eastern European Jewry, that's what they wanted for themselves, this ability to uh, carry themselves um, among non-Jews. So that's why we see these uh, very uh, rhapsodic portraits of, uh, we read these rhapsodic portraits of uh, Spanish Jewry and uh, the the beautiful way they held themselves. Yes, that's what's very interesting. Um, so we'll move on and talk about Chapter 3, uh, which is where you focus on Jewish architecture, particularly in the 19th century, and uh, you suggest there was a building boom of new synagogues built um, in an entirely fictitious Sephardic design. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about what was this design, how did it come about, and uh, what was its broader meaning for um, German Jewish identity? Yes, sure. So first of all, there was a building boom. It wasn't just synagogues. Um, as German Jewry uh, grew in numbers in the um, in the 19th century, they began, like other Jewish communities pretty much all over the world, they began to leave rural areas and move to the cities. And in moving to the cities, um, their population, you know, the population density of Jews in any one particular location grew, of course, and uh, they needed new facilities. And so what we see in the 19th century in Germany is a massive uh, boom, building boom of Jewish infrastructure, 
um, Jewish schools, um, Jewish community centers, hospitals, schools, cemeteries, uh, ritual bathhouses, mikvot, uh, and the like. And one aspect of the building boom were the uh, new synagogues that were built. And this is an interesting and unusual um, part of the story because the call to abandon Ashkenazic pronunciation of Hebrew uh, in favor of Sephardic or um, the publication of uh, belles and novels and poems that we perhaps get to later on in the discussion, uh, all of those are really meant for internal consumption. But architecture by its very nature uh, meant that this was the only expression of um, kind of Sephardic mystique or an allure of the Sephardim that was constructed, uh, and I mean that literally and figuratively, uh, constructed um, together with non-Jews because, you know, the granting of permits to build were by the non-Jewish authorities. There were very few Jewish architects, hardly any Jewish architects in Germany in the 19th century. And so almost all of the architects, bar one, uh, of the new synagogues that were built were built by non-Jewish architects. So this was a real sort of partnership between uh, city and uh, Jewish community, between um, non-Jewish architect and Jewish congregations. And all of the buildings, the new Jewish buildings that were built, as I mentioned, the schools and uh, uh, community centers and the like, were all built in sort of the uh, regnant style of whatever that city had as its, uh, you know, as its, as its predominant building style. Uh, very often that was neo-Gothic. And uh, in Germany in the 19th century, there was a um, debate as to what the ideal national style of architecture should be. And it was a debate that went on in the architectural journals for decades. And architects were split between whether it should be neoclassical or neo-Byzantine uh, or a um, neo-Gothic style of architecture. And the Jews probably, like Jews everywhere else, would have liked to have built in the dominant style, and that was very frequently neo-Gothic, but they were told that that was a German Christian national style of architecture and inappropriate for a synagogue. But they said, we will help you find a Jewish national style of architecture for these new synagogues that had to be built for these growing Jewish communities. And the style that uh, many of these non-Jewish architects came up with was the neo-Moorish style, sort of a neo-Islamic style. So we had built uh, spectacular synagogues uh, with minarets and crenellations and um, very ornate domes um, that borrowed from a whole slew of styles, but the predominant one would be the sort of neo-Moorish style. Of course, they bore absolutely no resemblance to what were probably very, very small, uh, rather plain uh, synagogues in Spain, uh, you know, between the years of 900 and 1100. These were you know, built in Berlin and Leipzig, and they were gigantic synagogues that sat 2,000 people. Mm. Um, 
So they, so this was an imagined aesthetic all the way along, but nonetheless, they, um, they were uh, truly spectacular edifices uh, that came about at a time when, bear in mind that German Jews were not yet emancipated. That doesn't happen until 1871. Uh, and one of the accusations uh, that was launched at Jews um, very frequently by those who thought they shouldn't be emancipated was that they were a foreign and oriental people. That was the word that was always used to describe them, oriental. And um, that is to say non-European. And yet they built these synagogues that really reaffirmed their foreign uh, oriental, quote-unquote, origins. So that's a very interesting aspect of this. And I think that the reason that they built them in this style is that they really made a statement that you may as well emancipate us because we're going nowhere. They're really rather defiant. Um, and they run counter to a sort of a very common depiction of German Jews as uh, pliant um, and as, um, well, you know, always prepared to toe the line. But they really are a statement uh, of uh, permanency and an unwillingness to yield uh, and an unwillingness to uh, remain in a state where they don't have legal rights. And so they were presented to these cities in many ways, I think, as a fait accompli. That is to say, we're here, we're going nowhere, so you may as well emancipate us. And that's, in fact, what ended up happening. And I think the other thing that was important as to why this style, this style of neo-Moorish architecture was chosen is that um, it's utterly without precedent. There were no neo-Moorish synagogues like this ever in Jewish history, and I think that that was what their appeal was. That is to say they're without precedent, they're entirely new, and they are befitting a community that sees itself as um, starting afresh, starting anew. German Jewry may have had in a very long past, of course, the first the first uh, mention of Jews in Germany uh, we have is actually uh, from Roman times, from 321, um, <clears throat> from the city of Cologne. But nonetheless, the German Jewry that we sort of come to know uh, is a community that really um, emerges in the 18th century. And so it's new. And these synagogues are new edifices for a new community. Hopefully, uh, and many of them were reform synagogues, also a new form of Jewish uh, religious expression. And so their unprecedented nature appealed to the um, creative energies of a community that is just beginning to emerge and find its own feet and distinguish itself from the much larger Ashkenazic world. That's great. So in chapter four, you examined the depiction of Sephardim in German-Jewish popular culture, um, particularly looking at novels, poems, and um, short stories. These were often fast-paced adventure stories. Um, could, could you tell us a bit more about this and, and what, they, what they represented, these stories? So I think that the, um, the 
spread of this idea of uh, Sephardic beauty, Sephardic superiority, and um, the popularization of Sephardic culture um, was best expressed through popular literature. And uh, these, as you say, short stories and poems and uh, <clears throat> short novels were all serialized and uh, they appeared in the German Jewish press. And so, um, you know, every Friday when the Jewish newspaper would come, people would look forward every week to the next installment of these rather gripping tales. What's interesting about them, of course, is that very few of them are actually set during the Golden Age uh, that I've been speaking about, that is the Golden Age under Islam. And I guess it's because, you know, good news doesn't sell. And so they tend to be uh, set uh, just at that moment when um, of the Reconquista, with the uh, the reconquest of Spain uh, by the Catholics uh, that displaces uh, Muslim Muslim rule of Spain, and that begins the, the Jewish tragedy, of course, that culminates in 1492 with the expulsion of the Jews. Uh, and so, what we have are these tales that are typically Victorian uh, in nature, uh, Jewish damsels in distress very cruel inquisitors, um, heroic actions by Jews to save, uh, to save Jews you know, who have been sent to the stake. Um, and all of these things, uh, you know, all, all of the elements of melodrama um, captivated the Jewish public uh, in, in ways that, uh, um, that show the German Jewry also had itself, uh, you know, a, a, a popular culture, um, that it wasn't all um, high culture, that this, uh, these novels and these short stories really gripped uh, the population and um, I think were, was key, really key to um, spreading the idea about Sephardic Jewry and that with a jury that is in decline, as portrayed in this belette, German Jewry stood poised to become the next great Jewish civilization. Mm. They're at the, they're, they're pictured at this moment of their tragedy, when the good old days of Muslim Spain uh, are um, are no more, and uh, Ferdinand and Isabella have read the uh, led uh, the Reconquista. Um, and uh, the Jewish, as I say, the Jewish tragedy and suffering of the Spanish Jews is underway. And so the next great uh, bright spot on the horizon for a, a European Jewish community, uh, the implication of that is that the next great bright spot would be Germany itself. Where reason would prevail because reason uh, was... Um, Reason did prevail in Spain under the Muslims and it was displaced by the unreason of uh, fanaticism of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, culminating, as I say, in the, in the expulsion. That's, yeah, that's really very interesting. Um, so, those, so those stories make German Jews feel good about their own contemporary situation, of course. They're in the heart of Europe, they're in... Uh, in a, in a uh, country that is a country that leads the world in science, that its universities are the envy of the world. 
the German Jewry itself is becoming, you know, a solidly uh, middle-class, bourgeois, highly, highly educated uh, Jewish community. Um, and so <clears throat> that stands in stark contrast to the portrayal of Spanish Jewry in their, in their hour of great need and deprivation. This sort of leads us into uh, the next chapter, which is um, about German Jewish historians. And today we have this um, very common idea um, of this period of um, medieval Spain being being a golden age for uh, for Jewry. Can you tell us a bit about this? You sort of uh, you locate this idea of the golden age as coming particularly from this period of um, German Jewish history writing. Can you tell us a bit about how and why this image was constructed uh, by German Jewish historians? Sure. Um, so in the, in the 19th century, we begin to get the first Jewish historians. Histor history wasn't a discipline that was practiced by Jews before the um, 19th century. And the first historians really emerge in Germany. Um, around 1820, 1819, And very often the focus of uh, Jewish historical studies um, in the 19th century was on the golden age of Spanish Jewry. Uh, remember that uh, the 19th century for Europeans in general, particularly in Central and Western Europe, uh, were besotted by the Middle Ages, which is why you get uh, neo-Gothic architecture everywhere. So, for example, you know, you're, you're at Melbourne University, so Melbourne University has its neo-Gothic architecture. So there's a celebration, and other parts of Melbourne do as well, so there's um, there's a celebration of uh, the neo-Gothic in the Middle Ages. Well, the traditional view was that for Jews uh, in Central Europe, the Middle Ages um, was nothing to write home about. There was nothing to really uh, celebrate. It was a period of unremitting uh, suffering, blood libels, crusades, uh, charges of host desecration, well poisoning. It goes on and on and on. Yet there is one one bright spot, as as portrayed by historians, and that was the Spanish Golden Age. And so there's so Jews were able to say we also have our glorious medieval period. To be sure, it wasn't ours, that is to say, that of Central European Jewry, but there was a Jewish community that enjoyed a glorious medieval past, and it was Spanish Jewry. So there's a focus on, on that. Now, also, Spanish Jewry is, um, it's not entirely concocted. Of course, you did have uh, philosophy, rabbinics, um, and other great achievements by this community. But, of course, the way it was portrayed by the historians, you would, uh, you would think that everyone, every Jew in Spain, was, you know, a Hebrew grammarian, a philosopher, a courtier, a poet, a doctor. And, of course, it was a small minority of people. But uh, the minorities, uh, that minority of uh, high achievers was taken and portrayed as being representative of the entire community as a whole. And 
the historians were really responsible for um, explaining why it was that you had in this period such a high-achieving Jewish community. And the reason they invariably gave was that it was living in the tolerant environment of Islam that allowed Jews to fulfill their aspirations uh, and fulfill their uh, God-given potential. And so in many ways what the historians were saying, the 19th century German Jewish historians were saying, was um, they were not only just uh, telling stories about uh, medieval Jews that, uh, that were stories worth celebrating, but they were also talking to uh, their contemporary Germans as well in the 19th century because many of these historians, say someone like Heinrich Gretz, the greatest historian of the 19th century, Jewish historian, um, were teaching in rabbinical seminaries like the Jewish Theological Seminary in Breslau, when in fact with their qualifications and their abilities they actually felt that they should be teaching at places like the University of Berlin or Tübingen or Göttingen or something like that. And so uh, what they're saying is, uh, you Germans, you should take a leaf out of the, uh, the Muslims of medieval Spain because they were an ideal host society where Jews were given an opportunity to advance and progress and uh, achieve their fullest potential. And so instead of uh, restricting us to teaching in, uh, you know, in our day, instead of rest- restricting us to teaching in uh, Jewish seminaries um, and not giving us our full rights, uh, you should be more like uh, the Muslims of medieval Spain that accorded Jews their rights um, and be more like them. Now, of course, that entailed a tremendous exaggeration of uh, just how tolerant um, the dominant uh dominant society was in medieval Spain. It wasn't quite as rosy as they, as they made it out to be. Well, that's a very interesting summary of uh, your book. I think hopefully we've uh, managed to do justice to it, at least partially. Uh, if you could tell us a little, about, a little bit about uh, your next research project. So the next research project um, is is uh, very different, uh, entirely different. Um, I'm interested in writing a book on um, uh, the history of meat in Germany oh. as it pertains to Jews. Right. It's a very, very long history um, whereby uh, meat is both in real terms and symbolic terms the great um, serves as the great divide between Jews and non-Jews, uh, both in uh, terms of social relations, the, the ability of Jews to eat with non-Jews, uh, but also issues to do with charges of uh, um, the way meat is slaughtered led to charges of cruelty, but it led to countercharges by Jews that shkita, um, uh, or the Hebrew word for Jewish animal slaughter, is the most humane method of slaughter. So you get uh, you know, charge and then countercharge by Jews. But it also um, 
serves as a dividing line between Jews themselves, that is to say those who continue to observe dietary restrictions and those who don't. Um, so there's a whole history that begins uh, already in probably in the 1600s, uh, 15 and 1600s, I would say, um, the early modern period that goes through to the very end um, of into the into well into the 20th century. Um, issues to do with uh, the uh, banning of uh, ritual slaughter uh, in the 19th century, um, or attempts to have it banned. Uh, animal rights societies were were um, really very anti-Semitic. Um, and used uh, the issue of animal slaughter to um, <clears throat> to launch an assault against Jews, um, where the concerns were clearly not. Uh, they were dressed up as being out of concern for the animals, but the way uh, the way animals were treated in um, <clears throat> in uh, non-Jewish abattoirs was uh, really uh, quite quite despicable. And if they were really that concerned, uh, they would have had better conditions in those places. So it was really an excuse for something else. Mm. Um, and then you also have, you know, religious issues in the 19th century with the advent of uh, reform Judaism. And so the issues of um, dietary restrictions, um, kashrut, um, were open to dispute, open to discussion. And so, uh, you know, that, that will form uh, part of our discussion um, in, in this book uh, about how Jews, you know, reacted to one another uh, and what the relevance was of, uh, of uh, the dietary laws in the 19th century. Were they outmoded? Were they still relevant? Uh, you also had the rise of 19th century um, Protestant biblical criticism uh, in the 19th century that uh, – that had very, very long discussions about issues to do with animal sacrifice in, um, in ancient Israel. So that will also be another subject of this book. I've only just just started it. I'm at the very beginning stages of the research. So, but those are some of the topics that, um, that, uh, that will um, make up the, the study, I hope. Right. Well, that sounds very interesting, and uh, we'll certainly, uh, uh, once that um, project is completed, we'd certainly love to have you on new books in Jewish studies, um, again, to talk to us about that. That would be my pleasure. Great. Well, thank you very much again for your time, um, John. So we've been speaking to uh, Professor John M. Efron about his new book, uh, German Jewry and the Allure of the Sephardic, uh, published by Princeton University Press this year, 2016. Um, and it's an absolutely fascinating book, as you've uh, hopefully been able to hear uh, some of, um, so I definitely recommend um, getting your hands on a copy. So thanks very much again, John. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Mm-hmm.